again. Welcome to Monkey Club with Chris and Chris, a journey through the history of Simeon Simina. Fuck, I can never say that. <laughs> Has there ever been an episode where I was able to say that, sober or not, the first time? I mean, you always do have a little bit of trouble right off the bat, probably because you're just more of a free thinker. Yeah. And you, and you don't like being scripted. And I can respect that. You were almost there. You were so close. Welcome back to Monkey Club with Chris and Chris, a journey through the history of Simeon Cinema. I'm Chris Mattiello. And I'm Christian Larson. And we're back this week with 1988's Gorilla is in the Mist, starring uh, one Sigourney Weaver. Yes, uh, episode six. And I was really looking forward to this movie because we have gone through so many just dire children's movies or bad horror movies and this is generally considered it, it was it was critically acclaimed when it came out i i believe sigourney weaver won an oscar for it or, or there was an oscar won for this movie uh, i was doing some research there and it was nominated for best actress sigourney weaver editing score which is interesting because i felt like the music was uh not really especially noticeable um and adapted screenplay which makes a lot of sense the score reminded me of a slightly more respectable version of the cheesy African pan flute music from Born to be Wild. You know, a lot of the setting also reminded me of Born to be Wild, which is, <laughs> I mean, that's a really unfortunate connection to make when it comes to a movie that's based off of true events and is about serious stuff uh, versus a kid power movie with a shitty looking fake gorilla. Yeah, I, I, I was kind of dismayed at the number of times during this film I was like, hey, that's just like the first five minutes of Born to be Wild. What a terrible thing to say in relation to a respectable film like this. Maybe it was because of that anticipation of being about to see a legit movie that I kind of looked at this through rose-colored glasses. Well, now's a good time to mention that we tried recording this with a special guest. Her name was Rachel Maldonado, and she was looking forward to watching this because it contained this sort of feminist icon. Yeah. And she was surprised at how disappointed she was in it and how unsympathetic she ended up finding Diane Fossey and just how kind of a generic oscar bait biopic this movie is. as you say that i was thinking that this movie takes diane fossey who it's based on and uh when we speak about how we don't like or at least me how i don't like diane fossey i don't know the the late diane fossey i mean the character that uh the director and sigourney weaver presents to us uh that diane fossey is extremely unsympathetic very cold very inhuman which i think is not inhuman like some sort of genocidal monster, but she connects better with the gorillas in the mist than she does with other humans. And I, th I guess that's kind of a thematic plot point throughout the whole thing, but compared to biopics today where there's no negativity towards who it's focused on, it, it'll gloss over anything negative, I found that to be kind of a breath of fresh air. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, it, it's to this movie's credit that it's, isn't afraid to portray her like that. It, you know, even though she is very sympathetic towards the beginning as a young woman trying to make it in a male-dominated scientific field, they're not afraid to show you, like, hey, maybe she was horrible in some ways. Again, who knows? 
I'm sure Diane Fossey, the person, was a lovely person, and all of her flaws were made up for dramatic effect in this film. Um, and it starts early on. The first time that we see her, she's running up to this anthropologist uh, who's eventually going to become her boss named uh, Dr. Leakey, I think it was. He's just given a lecture, and she runs up to him afterwards and just says, hey, I work with special ed kids. Give me a job in the Congo counting gorillas. And then when he's like, no, who are you? What do you do? She gets really bossy, like, no, I need to have this job. I deserve this job. When he doesn't know that, he doesn't know her. This is a dangerous thing. It's going to cost a lot of money to go and do this research. Why would he ever give it to this person? But I guess we're just supposed to immediately be behind Diane Fossey since she's portrayed by Sigourney Weaver. In my research, the way she started up with Dr. Leakey was much more complicated, of course, but this is a good opportunity to show a scene where she is sort of not being taken seriously. Dr. Leakey at first doesn't want to have anything to do with her. Photographers step in and tell her to get out of the way. It's sort of like kind of a heavy-handed presentation of the obstacles that she's putting up with. Wait, before we go any further, I know we don't have a special guest tonight, but it wouldn't seem right if we didn't play a round of 12 Monkeys before we got started. Oh man, I've never been on this side of the game before. This is like Alex Trebek having to answer questions. <laughs> I'll go first. Uh, Zul goes to Africa, plays with apes, becomes evil red witch. Nice. I like it. I like it a lot. I'm going to go on a similar wavelength. I'm, I'm, I'm going to steal from you. And I'm going to say, Ripley goes to Congo. Surprise ending. She dead. Oh, wow. Spoiler alert right there in the uh, Oh, yeah. I'm going uh... to spoil that for the audience because here's the thing. And we'll talk about this at the end, I'm sure. That was the only thing that captured my attention in this movie was I didn't do the research into Diane Fossey beforehand. And I was kind of expecting... Um, I think I was kind of confusing her in my head with Jane Goodall. Yes, me too, me too. So I guess that's problematic. I didn't see that ending coming at all. Neither did I. I mean, I expected that she was like a, a, a woman who still works the speaking yeah. circuit. But no, she died very mysteriously and violently in the jungle. But we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, so she gets this job. She goes to the Congo, I guess? It's... Uh, it is the Congo, and then I think she ends up in Rwanda. I don't, I don't know what the lines were in, uh, in regards to African countries in, in 19, uh, I guess, 80, the early 80s in this part of the film, right? In this part of the film, takes place in the mid-70s, 70s, I believe, okay. because her first meeting with Dr. Leakey, I believe, is in the 60s, so. Yeah, the, the territory lines have probably changed, I would imagine. A big side plot in this movie is uh, African genocide and corrupt governments and things like that. Wikipedia does seem yeah. to imply it is the Rwandan government that she uh, has dealings with throughout. There's a civil war going on, and I suppose if you if you travel to any African country, it's a good rule of thumb to prepare for a civil war. Yeah. You know, this is her, her first big gig, and it's in an African country that's in the middle of a civil war. Like, she's she's keeping her shit together pretty well for that. Because African civil wars, they're no joke. No, no, I'm a big fan of, uh, a big, I mean, is anyone a big fan of this movie? I just, I really enjoyed when I watched it, uh, was Hotel Rwanda. 
Um, so, I mean, sure, I'm, I'm aware of the... Uh, I have massive respect. I'm basically a, a massive coward. Uh, so I have huge respect for these people who go to, uh, you know, your Rwandas or your Irans and things like that and just throw themselves into these places where they are not welcome, but they're attempting to do humanitarian stuff. And there's always, you always get these horrendous stories of journalists who, who go missing or turn up dead. And I, I, I respect these people in a huge way just because I know that I'm too big of a coddled coward to ever do something like that. It, it seems just insane to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you when you hear about uh, some humanitarian worker that ends up being a hostage or, or beheaded, you know, you think to yourself, how dedicated must you be to whatever it is you're doing for that to just be a possibility in the back of your mind all the time? Mm-hmm. That's some balls. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, go on. I feel like it all started when I saw uh, Cannibal Holocaust at like thirteen. <laughs> Far too young to be uh, to be seeing a movie like that now. Now I'll never go as a journalist to some to some country where there's a chance I'll be uh, beheaded or eaten or anything like that. It's not for me. Yeah, Diane meets up with her fateful manservant in the village, whose name I wrote down phonetically, Simbagara. Okay. She meets this guy who's going to be her tracker, and together they journey up into the the mountains, into the jungle. Yeah, you get your, you get your first hint here that she doesn't have a great rapport with other human beings like she doesn't work with them well or understand them on any kind of human level because she seems to think that he's almost like a tool for her to use because as he as he's chopping through the jungle with machete she says well why haven't you tracked these things yet and he goes i'm a tracker but not of these gorillas and she acts like she had gotten the wrong model person. It's it's a really shitty thing for her to do right in front of this guy who is chopping his way through the jungle for you. But yeah, they go and they search for a very long time for the gorillas. And eventually they find a group and she does the wrong thing and angers the silverback, who I believe, I guess, is the alpha male of any gorilla group. Yeah. Right? And, uh... The silverback chases them down a mountain, they roll down the mountain, and when they get back to their camp, it's being raided by the local army, who tells them that all white people have to leave the Congo. Yeah, their first experience with the local government does not end well. Uh, They're forced across the border at machine gun point, but then they run into this kind of, I guess I'd call her this odd white savior that's just living out in the middle of the Rwandan jungles in this strange-looking, colorful Oz house. Uh, this just weird jungle nymph lady who takes her in and kind of disappears for the rest of the movie after that. Yeah, the uh, I know that she represents a real person uh, in Diane Fossey's life who just happened to have a giant, lush plantation in the middle of war-torn Rwanda. I mean, talk about white privilege. Jesus, like, <laughs> like where, what, talk about a, a shitty neighborhood to live in, but she's like, oh, they're not going to touch me. Well, here's the thing. She's got that big garden, right? And you've got these armies who are shaking people down. What's she growing in that garden that she's given away as payment to keep her safe? Oh. All right, right. So, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. A couple of, a couple of poppy plants, maybe? Hmm? Huh? Sure, yeah. a marijuana yeah. bush mm-hmm. or two. Coquina. I don't think it's the right climate, but <laughs> hey, maybe. Maybe she's bringing it with her. She's got to be giving them Ooh. something. 
she gives her a place to stay so she's not like just aimlessly walking through Rwanda and she's going to send out a letter to Dr. Leakey quitting the project when she comes to a realization about the mountains, right? Yeah, she realizes that the mountains share a border and that it's kind of a leap like she thinks, oh well, if the humans can move across the border, then so can the gorillas and we can just go on this side of the mountain to try to... Uh, and they're there not to observe them. They're there to census uh, them, correct? Like, count them up, see how many are left? Yeah, th- I mean, that's the main point. But I think Diane Fossey's biggest claim to fame is that she got closer to gorillas than anyone ever had. Yes. And she was able to observe much more specific things about their behavior and their culture. And no one had ever even dared to get this close before counting them was as close as they were going to get and i believe dr leakey once he finds out that diane is like standing within feet of them and sometimes touching them he's like what the hell are you doing you can't be doing yeah the way he talks about them it's like they're giant furry jasons like they'll just crush your head if you look at them wrong or if you're in there they're part of the woods and there's several scenes uh Probably a few too many. I think it could have been consolidated. One of my big issues with this movie is, is that it's longer than any of the Star Wars movies. And for a movie to do that, it really needs to have its pacing down to a pretty tight clip. And this does not. There's a few too many scenes of her getting slowly closer to the gorillas. Or the baby gorilla getting slightly closer to her and then touching her on the leg. And it, it, it goes on a bit too long for my liking. But you do get some good... Uh, Sigourney on real gorilla action? Yeah, they, I mean, they couldn't possibly, the, the baby gorilla that plays a big part in this couldn't possibly have been real because I'm sure it's it's hard enough to work with human babies. Mm. to have. I'm pretty sure the baby ape was like a gizmo type thing. I could see that. Like, But the larger apes seemed, for the most part, to be actual apes. That was pretty impressive after seeing some of the most horrible fake apes in movie mm-hmm. history over the past few episodes. I did read somewhere that she learned, I guess from someone who was close to Diane Fossey and worked uh, alongside of her, she learned, uh, she being Sigourney Weaver, learned a bunch of her affectations, uh, both physically and vocally, and mimicked them. So, and it turned out that a lot of the gorillas got close with Sigourney Weaver due to that. So I think that that implied I guess that implies that there were there were some real gorillas used throughout the filming. I don't know which ones though. I did read that working with the gorillas was something that Sigourney Weaver was very enthusiastic about. And actually, I remember as a child, I was 9 years old when this came out and I remember it being on my radar as something that was talked about a lot it was the big prestige drama of the year Mm. and there were tons of interviews with Sigourney Weaver and I remember her talking about what a moving experience it was actually working with these apes because the late 80s were also when people were just starting to think about the environment so I'm pretty sure that this kind of was a response to that sort of movement in popular culture Yeah, I was just talking about this with someone, how it's weird that I've never lived during a time where people, like, weren't telling me to recycle and things like that. Like, there was a time when people didn't have any real knowledge of of conservation of nature or what humans were doing to the ecosystems around them. 
I guess you're saying the late 80s is when that really started? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, you, you think, oh, people don't give a shit about the environment today. Like, yeah, not as much as they should, but at least they're, they're aware of the concept right. of things like finite resources or where does my garbage go. That wasn't a thing until a certain point in the 80s. Before that, who cares where your garbage went? Who cares how much wood or oil is left in the world or water? But that all changed, and it's probably for the better, yep. I'd say. Thanks, Captain Planet. Yes, or whoever it was in the A. I wonder who, like, the first person to sort of campaign successfully for environmentalism was. I'm going to guess it wasn't Emperor Reagan. Just going to throw no. that out there. No, I'm I, I'm thinking it was like Alvin and the Chipmunks, maybe, or like Mr. T. I don't know. Well, there had to be some sort of like governmental push for all of that kind of stuff, right? At some point. Well, yeah. I mean, the '90s is when it started becoming mainstream. You mean you mean when did they turn it into a liberal brainwashing propaganda for children? Yeah, I just mean like because to get people really on board with something, you need some kind of big pop culture moment where everyone's like, hey, recycling is cool. What was recycling's and, we are the world moment? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, there had to be something. It's an interesting thought. Like, where did that... Uh, a question that we will not answer on this podcast. No, no. That's a question for a deeper podcast, like an NPR. Yeah. So, Diane is in the, in the woods. She's rolling around with the monkeys she's learning from them they're learning from her and she gets her first taste of the poachers because she stumbles across one of their camps or one of their groups of traps and it's all there's like voodoo dolls and stuff and it was very reminiscent to me of the first season of true detective there was like a creepy old tree and there mm. were like dolls hanging from nooses off the branches or... Yeah, the portrayal of native religions and like ideology uh, has never been really fantastic in films. It certainly wasn't then, it certainly isn't now. I think there's a moment, is this where um, the whole thing boils down to if the leader can touch the white woman's hair? I know that that is a scene that happens, but yeah. She's surrounded by these guys, and they've got blades pointed at her, and it looks like they're just going to kill her. And then they ask for a lock of her hair. Yeah, yeah. Which I think they later use in, like, a voodoo doll that they make of her. I, I didn't I catch that, but, I mean, I, I believe it. The movie has a few too many, uh, like, white protector in a savage world moments for my liking. It happens right off the bat when she first arrives there, and there's a, a few other times where it, it just... Again, tying in with the idea that this portrayal of Diane Fossey has no interest in relating to human beings, she has no interest assimilating or acknowledging the cultures that she is thrust into. Yeah, well, she decides that since she is going to be fighting these poachers, she is going to convince them that she's this red witch. Because she has red nail polish and she uses that to like draw pictures of witches on the trees. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I don't have a great recollection of the poachers, really. You would think they would be a major antagonist throughout the movie, but they're really not. They just show up, cause a little mayhem, get run off. I think it's kind of rinse and repeat on that two or three times. And 
all of the poacher stuff is kind of blended together in my head since it's been a while since I watched it. They constitute relatively little of the film, mm -hmm. just like the gorillas actually take up relatively little of the film. There is the one subplot where the evil Dutch zoo guy steals one of the baby gorillas and she chases him into town and steals the gorilla back and, and she embarrasses him in front of the fancy dinner party at the hotel. Yeah, that was yep, pretty yep. That was, like, arguably the most dramatic moment of the film, action-wise. And that was when I kind of thought that the baby gorilla must be a gizmo-type device. Yeah, that would make sense. I could see her with the gorillas in the jungle in, like, these kind of small, natural environments. They could be real, but, I yeah, I sincerely doubt Sigourney Weaver was carrying around a real baby gorilla through a set with extras and loud noises and things like that. Is this about the point where Bob shows up? The, the best name for a, a love interest you can have, Bob. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not really going through this linearly because there are really just kind of nebulous themes that happen throughout the film. There's the stuff with the monkeys, there's the stuff with the poachers, and then there's Bob who is a uh, hunky Australian nature photographer who shows up in her camp, and they have a bit of a meet-cute. Yeah, he's just, uh, he's kind of in her place, I believe, if I remember correctly, and he's saying, uh, the, you know, they meet, he's, uh, he's got an Australian accent, he's a world-traveled, uh, possibly National Geographic photographer, and again, Diane Fossey does not know how to interact with humans, uh, He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm just real cold. Let me warm up for a second. And she's like, nah, beat it. Go sleep with the, uh, the rest of the scrubs out there in the tents. I'm the one that gets a house buster. I was surprised at how unnecessarily mean and unwelcoming she was to Bob. In my notes, I actually have why so hostile question mark. But I chalk that up not so much to her showing that she is cold or unwelcoming. It's a cheap future romantic partners meet in a movie thing where they don't get along at first because it's more dramatic for a movie and more entertaining if two people who are destined to fall in love don't get along at first like it's it's so cliche i guess part of it feels like her defensiveness and her hostility should have been like hey there's this man in my sleeping quarters why is that we could have set up this idea of, of how hostile the humans are as much as nature, but it never really does a great job of that, even though I think that's what it was going for. And she just comes off like an asshole. And yeah, sure, they will, of course, end up together briefly, but it starts so low and she is so untoward. It's all unbelievable to me. Again, it's really just a classic trope. Like, I don't know if you saw the movie They Came Together by the Wet Hot American Summer guys. I'm a big fan uh, of that movie. In that movie, which is basically a series of movie cliches, when the man and the woman meet, they're on their way to a costume party, and they're both dressed as Benjamin Franklin, and as a result, they're all pissed off at each other all night, and that's, like, kind of what we have here. It's just in service of the trope, and it will make them getting together more satisfying 
in the long run. Sigourney Weaver wearing a Benjamin Franklin costume throughout this movie is Gorillas in the Mist better. <laughs> Holy shit, that put an image in my head. <laughs> right? Uh, Looking through her bifocals at this monkey that's starting to climb up on her. I suppose that would be good camouflage <laughs> when hanging out with gorillas, like, to be dressed like Ben Franklin. Oh, man, I'm going to have to, like, Photoshop that somehow. Like, Sigourney Weaver dressed as Benjamin Franklin among gorillas. Just, just get one of those, like, shitty mashup artists to draw, like, a series of Sigourney Weaver movie shots just with her as Ben Franklin. <laughs> like, her in the in the mech suit and Aliens... Her in a oh. her in Galaxy Quest, uh, or Azul, but just all dressed as oh. Ben Franklin. <laughs> oh, what a great idea. I can't believe no one's thought of that yet. Right? I kind of like Bob. I kind of like Bob, except then he says, I'll divorce my wife for you, Sigourney Weaver. And it's just like, oh, Bob, you, first off, bad move. <laughs> Secondly, how, how this woman might be a robot. That whole thing... Diane has a husband at home. She mentions him a few times. And in real life, I remember reading that the character of Bob is sort of a composite of the many, many lovers she had over the years. Oh, that's interesting. Um, They wanted to boil it down to a very simple, you know... And this guy is great, you know, he's he's definitely plays the sensitive yet rugged adventuring photographer. He's played by the guy from Cocktail, who was Tom Cruise's best friend. I am uh, I'm looking at his filmography right now and uh he's in a lot of stuff but he's not in anything if that makes sense yeah i mean that's why cocktail really stands out yeah it's it's really the the only big thing he ever did outside of this i feel like the Uh, fx series might have been one of those um wpix saturday afternoon matinee classics that i saw quite a bit as like a 10 year old child oh that's right he was in the fx movies that's true yeah I, w- but, I wouldn't even yeah. call him a that guy. He's, he's just a you know, guy. <laughs> but he's great in this. Yeah, he's fine. I'm on Team Bob. I'm on Team Bob. He's willing to leave his, his wife for Diane. I mean, I, I'm assuming at some point Diane calls her husband and tells him she's not coming home. I forget. Is there an implication that they also have kids or does that not happen? She, I think she mentioned something about wanting to have kids and that, that of course, is just she just gives up everything for... Uh, not that I'm saying she has to be a, a mother to have value. Doesn't that... No, I'm saying at all. I'm just trying to remember if, uh, because we don't get a lot about her marriage other than that it exists. Like, it probably shouldn't even be mentioned in the movie. I'm trying to remember how serious they, they implied it was, if at all. You would think if they went out of their way to introduce that facet of the story, that it would have more of an impact on her future decisions. And it does a little at the beginning, but by the time Bob shows up, Nobody's even thinking about her husband. Yeah, it's it's just a, a passing comment. Doesn't really do a whole lot uh, other than make Diane look a little bit worse, which is one of the few things, in my opinion, the movie's good at. But um, then and then she says no, and, and Bob, old Bab's out of the movie again. Yeah, Bob has to go off to do some other awesome photography gig somewhere, and he gives her a bathtub and a dog, and then he says goodbye for the last time and diane is sad and this is like the big tragic moment of the film and she goes into the woods and cries with the gorillas and she's just really sad and then it cuts to five years later and she really has just cut away all of her human emotion at this point she's a goddamn cult leader 
Yeah. <laughs> she has she has her team of grad students out in the jungle with her. Oh, and they they come across some poachers. Yeah, this is the the, the aftermath to this is definitely a scene that I would like to discuss, but uh please set set the table. I feel like you have your notes so you'll you'll remember this better than I do. She goes off into the woods with a young girl who I suppose we're supposed to think of as the next Diane Fossey. Yeah. And meanwhile there's another male grad student who's like kind of beginning to think that maybe she's not very cool at all and he's going off doing something else and they come across the poachers diane does and the poachers all scatter because what the poachers do because the poachers are after the babies yeah and when they chase down the babies the rest of the pack attacks them and they end up killing like five gorillas for every baby they get so diane comes across them i think it's at this point or maybe it was earlier when she first chases down the little gizmo gorilla but it climbs up a tree and they're like shaking the tree to get it out of the tree and it falls out of the tree and that was one of those moments where i was like oh this reminds me of born to be wild (laughs) yeah and famous gorilla falls out of tree scene they all scatter because she's the evil red witch, I think. She's, like, pulling that kind of deal. But she grabs the kid. Is it the, the kid? She brings the kid back to camp? Well, she brings three of them, three of the poachers, that is, are brought back to the camp. And she puts a noose around one of their necks and then kicks a chair out from under him. But we find out that the noose was not connected to anything so he just falls to the ground and that is her way of of scaring the poachers into kind of being like you know don't pull this shit again next time it's for real buddy but it's it's completely like she's lost it It, it's lord of the flies out there she's lost her humanity and even her grad students and research assistants are like what is wrong with you and she's she just kind of says to one of them like toughen up or get the fuck out pal it's not a scene you want to put in if you're trying to give like a soft hand job to the person that a biopic is about you leave this out like you don't have the scene in straight out of compton where dre is beating his wife or the part where he like slammed a female reporter's head against a concrete wall repeatedly yeah yeah see that this that it would be like if they told the whole truth And that's what this movie does, and I give it credit for that. I give it credit for not pulling its punches with this woman who was brutally murdered doing this thing that she loved. It's uh, it's interesting, and I definitely, like I said before, I give this movie a little bit of credit for not pulling its punches. Even when she's chasing down the poachers and defending the gorillas during this final encounter, she's acting, she's moving like a gorilla, and she's making sounds like a gorilla maybe just to communicate with the gorillas that are under attack but also like she you see her morphing into a gorilla and uh the students are freaked out mm-hmm. but she just doesn't give a fuck no she no she's there for the gorillas she's not there for she's found a place where she doesn't have to deal with humans the movie never outright says it but i think that's the thing that she had secretly desired from the beginning hmm, that's interesting Oh, she's begun to cough because her smoking was a very big part of the movie. I was surprised that considering her habit, she could get as many cigarettes as she did up in the jungle. But I guess Dr. Leakey had some good connections. I'm sure that once she had proved to be so successful at this, I'm sure uh, Dr. Leakey was sending her whatever she wanted out there. She also had a lot of nail... They made a point of saying that she requested a lot of nail polish. 
which I thought, really, Diane? Like, you're a scientist in the jungle. I don't know. I mean, I guess the 70s were a different time to be a woman in the jungle. So that takes us to the kind of abrupt and unexpected ending of this movie. Yes. Apparently it's still an open, well, kangaroo courts out in, in Rwanda and all that. It's it's not an open investigation, but uh, in real life, no one knows who it was that snuck into Diane Fossey's bedroom in the night and murdered her with a machete. And this movie kind of just shows her sleeping in bed. We get a shadow on the wall and hard cut to her being buried where some of the dead gorillas are buried. I remember reading that this is true in real life as well. She's buried next to one of the main gorillas from her favorite gorilla group. I believe its name was Pivot. You're talking about the name of the gorilla that she uh, that gets killed? Yeah. Digit? Digit, that's yeah. right. She's buried next to Digit. Simbagara buries them, and that's it. She's, she's buried out there. And it's obvious that she made a lot of enemies in a dangerous place. Yeah, between the militias, between the governments, between the poachers, um, it, it's unfortunate, obviously, but it's it's not a shock why uh, in this place where there's not a real government or a police force that the murder of this this weird white woman, you know, just went unsolved. Yeah, this troublemaking gorilla lady. There are several points where she meets up with a local government official and she's like, you've got to stop this. And he says... Why would I want to? Like, this is how we make our money, through tourism and hunting. There's no reason why we shouldn't (laughs) let this happen. Yeah, and I mean, we are Americans, and we... Monkey Club has just seen, you know, we're going to date this episode a little bit, but there's just this controversy about the death of a gorilla that happened not too long ago. We come from this country where we see animals... As I was going to say these precious things to be loved, but we also put them in cages and pay to look at them. But we don't see them as this thing to just be killed for a part of them, uh, where that is totally a an acceptable and cultural thing. I'm not defending it. I'm not I'm not really saying anything about it other than that it exists uh, in other cultures and other countries. And for her to just kind of kick in this door and be like, hey, I mean, yeah, you're making a lot of enemies when that goes all the way up to the governments of a war-torn country. Yeah, and going back to what we were saying at the beginning about how there was this eventual epiphany among Americans that we need to take care of the environment, there are places in the world, for example, Japan with whaling, yeah. or cutting the fins off of sharks. Like That's been part of their culture for like thousands of years. And it's going to take a lot for the people who are hardcore into that lifestyle to be like, hey, we're running out of this and we are having an effect on the world. This isn't going to last forever. And it's sort of how the Rwandans were with monkey paws and things like that. Yeah, it's a thing that you, you know, you can have as many of your bearded white saviors of animals flying in there and trying to stop these people who have been doing this for generations. And yeah, sure, I'm on their side. I think cutting off a shark's fin and then throwing it back in the water is atrocious. Um, I think cutting off a monkey's paw is, you know, not great, you know, not, not a good thing. But you also have to recognize that it's ingrained in the culture and it's not a thing that's going to change overnight and it's certainly not going to change by force and it really might not change at all. It's just a, it could get better 
which the the credit scrawl at the end of this kind of implies that she did do something to save the species. I mean, you could compare it to when the United States goes into a country that's been ruled a certain way for thousands of years and says, hey, guess what? Now you're a democracy Mm -hmm. because we say this is better for you. And you can't just do that. But yeah, she did affect awareness, definitely. And she had a positive impact on gorillas. I mean, if it weren't for her, gorillas probably wouldn't be a thing that people really talked about. Like, gorillas were a hot topic because of her. They could have disappeared and no one would have ever known. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's a big part of why this movie exists, was that the the book this was based on and uh, the article, an, an article that was written about Diane Fossey, uh, were were big at the time. It caught a lot of people's attention. It was a thing that people did not know about, and she did something special that allows, uh, you know, a dumb podcast like this, you know, to exist, and, and a million other things as well. Like, anytime we see a gorilla that came from Africa, like, there is a good chance that it's thanks to her. Well, Diane, sorry about the, uh, the judgments we've passed on you tonight, wherever you are. Thank you, at the very least, for your contributions to the preservation of mountain gorillas. Yeah, and here's to you. Sorry they made you look so shitty with Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> so now is the time when we usually play a little game called Monkey Business, where we theorize what a sequel to this movie would look like. Yeah, that's tough, because, um... <laughs> Well, if A, it's based on a true story. B, everyone's dead. So, uh... Well, I mean, let's assume that you can take liberties with the sequel. Okay. All right. Uh, the ending of the movie where she was sort of in charge of a group of college kids, combined with her creating this persona of a homicidal red witch, really put me in the mind of an 80s horror movie. So what I would like to see is a few years later, a group of college students goes up into the mountains to study these gorillas, and either the ghost or the reanimated corpse of Diane Fossey, actually the reanimated corpse would work better because you would have a shot of her rising up out of the grave, Mm. and maybe uh, Digit would rise with her and they would just murder the college kids. In increasingly horrifying ways. It's got to start with the poachers. The poachers go first. They're like the Elm Street kids. And then, but her bloodlust can't be stopped, so it starts. They're the main characters, and they're the ones uh-huh. who have to figure out a way. Because we got we to have something for the revenge to root for, and that's the poachers all getting their heads ripped off and stuff. Yeah, 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 definitely. I could be into that. And, like, the college kids all have, they're like, could that be Diane Fossey? No, she died, you know, and there's this, they have to look into her past, and maybe Bob shows up, mm. and Bob knows the way to kill her, but he's conflicted because he's still in love with her. We can get a really offensive scene of, like, a, a tribal priest who's uh, saying some stuff in a local language, and one of the college kids goes, what is he saying? And uh, Simbagare goes, he's saying the Red Witch. Yeah, definitely a lot of offensive voodoo ceremonies to uh, banish the Red Witch. You've got a zombie gorilla in the mix. Mm -hmm. I think this could really... I mean, we might have some troubles with the estate of Diane Fossey approving of any of this. Yeah, I I 
think Diane Fossey is going to rise from her grave and kill us just for having this, uh, <laughs> for besmirching her in this way. Uh, so R.I.P.S. Sorry. You deserve it, though. Sorry. Again, Diane, so sorry. All right, so now it's apes versus humans, where we decide who gave the better performance in this film. Was it an ape? Or was it a human? The answers to these questions are going to eventually determine mankind's fate. Mm -hmm. So Chris, what did you think? I think it's easily Sigourney Weaver. The gorillas did exactly what they're supposed to do, which is be observed. And they did that in the real life of Diane Fossey, and they do it in the movie based on her. They're just there as (laughs) kind of set pieces. And this, this is really more a movie about a human who looked at gorillas than it is a movie about gorillas. So uh, Sigourney Weaver, uh, in my mind, is taking this one down very easily uh, for the humans. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the gorillas in this, I guess we've kind of been spoiled, although I, I, I think spoiled might be the wrong word, mm. by all these apes who do tricks yeah. and play baseball and get involved in various hijinks. Yeah, put on uh, various hats. Yeah. We've been so entertained by our monkeys in the past that seeing a gorilla that it's just acting like a gorilla is kind of a hard slam on the brakes for the monkey club. Which isn't to say that the gorillas weren't impressive. It was cool to see Sigourney Weaver interacting with real gorillas. The little gizmo gorilla was adorable. Mm. But it's Sigourney Weaver, and Bob was great, too. Even uh, Simba Gawe was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the story was, was pretty generic. Diane was, at many points, unsympathetic, but great performances all around. So I'm going to give a rare point to the humans for this one. Uh, yeah. Which, I mean, it's almost, it's like, almost unfair. It, this, if it, this is like the home field game in the seven game series like <laughs> the humans just just had this one and, and ran up the score because it's it's a movie about the humans it's not a movie about the gorillas so yeah i mean as i said before i was kind of surprised at how little the gorillas really had to do with it but yeah so this is great news for the humans who i believe were down four mm-hmm. to one and now it's uh now it's four to two still monkeys but uh there's time to turn that around yeah they're on the board so Chris, uh, any any final thoughts on Gorillas in the Mist, uh, the Diane Fossey story? It's, it's like I said, we we had a a misrecording in the past, and uh, I think I in in the short time that we we started that episode, I was more brutal on it then. I think the farther I get away from it, the more I'm okay with this movie. I, I do think it's it's shot in a very flat way. It's not. Uh, there's some beautiful shots of of Africa. It's just it's a biopic and. An, Biopics haven't changed that much over the years, and uh, I'm the, I don't like biopics. But the farther I get away from this, the more I appreciate kind of what Sigourney Weaver did uh, and what they were going for. And like I said, I respect them for just not making Diane Fossey seem like the, the greatest person in the world. I mean, uh, maybe, maybe the, you know, the, the sad alternate possibility is maybe she was, and they, they, they really kind of shit on her here. I don't know, but uh, it isn't just a, just a handjob biopic. And uh, I don't know if I'd recommend it. I think it needs to lose about 40 minutes, maybe 30 minutes somewhere. But uh, you could do worse if you really love the history of conservationism, specifically gorilla-oriented conservationism. 
then uh, I mean, maybe just read the book, but this it's, it's not terrible. It's funny, I had a, a similar experience because, yeah, we uh, a week ago we tried to record it, and it was a technical disaster, and at the time, I was really going to bat for it because you and Rachel were really just tearing it apart, and uh, in the time I've had to think about it and go over my notes, I can definitely see the criticisms of her not being an all-that-likable character, and the movie kind of just going through some serious Oscar-bait tropes. But still, overall, I, I enjoyed it pretty well. That's pretty cool um, that over time, like, level heads have kind of found a, a medium to, to come to, instead of, like, well, that, these snap judgments, these Twitter-esque snap judgments that we had after just watching the movie last time. Well, I... I hope that that kind of thinking doesn't catch on because that would be a dangerous precedent for our national discourse. That's that's uh, true. I think we should stick to just shouting out the first and most passionate thought that comes into our heads at all times. I think that'll be easier uh, as we start to watch more uh, rip-offs of King Kong movies and and Killer Monkey flicks. I think it'll be a lot easier to be uh, really excited or really angry about uh, about things that aren't about the real-life murder of a famous conservationist. We'll try to sprinkle a few a few decent movies into the mix. Movies that are more nuanced than a dog uh, teaching a monkey how to wrestle. Um, yeah, yeah, I forgot that was even on the list. Can't, can't wait for that one. <laughs> I watched part of it on a dare over the weekend, and... Uh, it, it was rough. It's going to be our Vietnam. Oof. All right. Well. So that'll be it for episode six of Monkey Club with Chris and Chris. I have been Christian Larson. I was once Chris Mattiello. And uh, for all things Monkey Club, Cage Club, Zack Attack, and anything else awesome on the internet, you can go to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Or look up the Cage Club Podcast Network on Facebook. Thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll see you next time here on The Monkey Club. Come down and beware of the black fist. The gorilla straight motherfucking killers in the mist. Take a shot, but you can't horse. Never thought you'd see some simple niggas in the forest. Don't kick in the cord, just shut, cause we ain't made a mess yet. Bitch rappers is the best shit. Never real hard, man, bumping in your car, man. Jigaboo come up from behind Hit him with a coconut, stab him in his gut Push him off the tree, he falls right on his nuts And just like EPMD, I don't like a bitch named J, J to the A to the N-E Can't wait to meet her, I'm gonna kill her Cause that little motherfucker